Hello and welcome to day six of the Craftlet Christmas Extravaganza. These are our 12 days before Christmas. And if you are just catching up with us, you should know there are five days of audio that are waiting for you at craftlet.com and also over at our annotated audiobook podcast YouTube channel for Craftlet. Today, again, I have some funny stuff for you and also some heartwarming stuff. We will bookend our listens today with two very short bits from Saki. You may know him as H. Monroe. He is the writer from the turn of the previous century who did such great short stories like The Open Window, stuff that kids read all the time in school because they have great twists at the end, usually. And he did a series of short stories about a guy named Reginald, who's kind of a jerk. <laughs> and so we start today with Reginald on Christmas presents, and we will finish with a piece called Reginald's Christmas Revel. In between those two, we will listen to a piece called Grandmother's Christmas Story, which was written by an author named Elizabeth M. Laws Hibbard, and her pseudonym was Faith Wynne, W-Y-N-N-E. Her piece is read to us by Ruth Golding, which is always a good thing. And there isn't a ton of information that we have on Miss Hibbard slash Wynne. We know that she was born in Indiana. She was born in 1836. She had moved there, or her family had moved there from Philadelphia. And it looks like Elizabeth began publishing after her father and brother died suddenly within two weeks of each other. It was bad. It's only after that time that she publishes, and it doesn't look like the family needed the money. So it is possible that she was just either prevented from or felt like she shouldn't publish while her father was alive. It's kind of hard to know, again, because not a lot was left behind about her. But she wrote quite a lot. The children's books that she wrote received really good reviews. She was very successful, yet nobody hears about her anymore. So there it is. Elizabeth Hibbard slash Faith Wynne. And those are our authors for today. Saki and win. All right, here we go. Reginald on Christmas Presents by Saki I wish it to be distinctly understood, said Reginald, that I don't want a George, Prince of Wales prayer book as a Christmas present. The fact cannot be too widely known. There ought, he continued, to be technical education classes on the science of present-giving, No one seems to have the faintest notion of what anyone else wants, and the prevalent ideas on the subject are not creditable to a civilized community. There is, for instance, the female relative in the country who knows a tie is always useful, and sends you some spotted horror that you could only wear in secret or in Tottingham Court Road. It might have been useful had she kept it to tie up currant bushes with— when it would have served the double purpose of supporting the branches and frightening away the birds. For it is an admitted fact that the ordinary tomtit of commerce has a sounder aesthetic taste than the average female relative in the country. Then there are aunts. 
they are always a difficult class to deal with in the matter of presents. The trouble is that one never catches them really young enough. By the time one has educated them to an appreciation of the fact that one does not wear red woolen mittens in the West End, they die, or quarrel with the family, or do something equally inconsiderate. That is why the supply of trained aunts is always so precarious. There is my Aunt Agatha, par example, who sent me a pair of gloves last Christmas, and even got so far as to choose a kind that was being worn and had the correct number of buttons. But they were nines. I sent them to a boy whom I hated intimately. He didn't wear them, of course, but he could have. That was where the bitterness of death came in. It was nearly as consoling as sending white flowers to his funeral. Of course I wrote and told my aunt that they were the one thing that had been wanting to make existence blossom like a rose. I'm afraid she thought me frivolous. She comes from the north, where they live in the fear of heaven and the Earl of Durham. Reginald affects an exhaustive knowledge of things political, which furnishes an excellent excuse for not discussing them. Aunts with a dash of foreign extraction in them are the most satisfactory in the way of understanding these things, but if you can't choose your aunt, it is wisest in the long run to choose the present and send her the bill. Even friends of one's own set, who might be expected to know better, have curious delusions on the subject. I am not collecting copies of the cheaper editions of Omar Khayyam. I gave the last four that I received to the lift-boy, and I like to think of him reading them with Fitzgerald's notes to his aged mother. Lift-boys always have aged mothers. Shows such nice feelings on their part, I think. Personally, I can't see where the difficulty in choosing suitable presents lies— no boy who had brought himself up properly could fail to appreciate one of those decorative bottles of liqueurs that are so reverently staged in Morrill's window, and it wouldn't in the least matter if one did get duplicates. And there would always be the supreme moment of dreadful uncertainty whether it was creme de menthe or chartreuse, like the expectant thrill on seeing your partner's hand turned up at bridge. People may say what they like about the decay of Christianity— the religious system that produced green chartreuse can never really die. And then, of course, there are liqueur glasses, and crystallized fruits, and tapestry curtains, and heaps of other necessaries of life that make really sensible presents, not to speak of luxuries, such as having one's bills paid, or getting something quite sweet in the way of jewellery. Unlike the alleged good woman of the Bible, I am not above rubies. When found, by the way, she must have been rather a problem at Christmas time. Nothing short of a blank check would have fitted the situation. Perhaps it's as well that she's died out. The great charm about me, concluded Reginald, is that I am so easily pleased. But I draw the line at a Prince of Wales prayer book. Fireside Christmas Short Stories Grandmother's Christmas Story by Faith Wynne. Henrietta and Roland and Frank were spending the holidays at Grandmother's, and among the many gifts for the children there was a book full of pictures for Henrietta, and her brown head was bent over it very earnestly for at least ten minutes, and she exclaimed, "'Bringing in the Yule log! What does that mean, Grandmother?' And Grandmother replied, 
it was an ancient English custom to have a log cut from the largest tree in the park on the last day of the Christmas holidays, and on the following Christmas Eve it was dragged in and placed upon the immense dogs on either side of the wide hearth. Those who dragged it in sang the while a carol, commencing, Come bring with a noise, my merry, merry boys, the Christmas log to the firing. It was then kindled with a brand from last year's Christmas fire that had been kept for the purpose, and with the light of this huge yule log, the great hall or dining apartment would be in a rich, warm glow. How perfectly lovely! cried the impulsive Roland, springing upon Grandmother's lap and giving her a quick little hug, while Henrietta and Frank drew near with eager faces. Please tell us more. Can't you tell us a story? said Henrietta, either about Christmas or New Year's. And let it begin when I was a little girl, said Roland. That's just like Roland, said Frank. He would always rather a story should commence when I was a little girl or boy than once upon a time. Well, suppose I commence once upon a time when I was a little girl. Said Grandmother, smiling at the three satisfied nods. Once upon a time, when I was a little girl, I spent the holidays with my parents in England, visiting some dear friends. The little daughter Elsie was about my own age, and she had two little cousins visiting her, one from Germany named Gretchen, and one from France named Adele. On Christmas Eve, we fell into quite a dispute. Elsie and I were quite sure Santa Claus, with his sleigh and reindeer, would soon be prancing over the roof, whose peaks I feared would prevent his reaching the chimney in safety. When Gretchen said, "Saint Nicholas was the one who brought gifts, and he rode upon a white horse carrying a basket on one arm filled with toys for the good children." And holding in his hand a bundle of switches for the naughty, disobedient ones. Our presents, said Adele, are generally brought on New Year's Eve instead of Christmas by a young maiden dressed in white, with long white hair flowing over her shoulders and a gold crown upon her head set round with burning tapers. In one hand she holds a silver bell, and in the other a basket of sweetmeats. We decided finally that we must not quarrel for fear the bundle of switches might be left for us, and so Elsie, Adele, and I hung up our stockings, and Gretchen knelt before the wide fireplace and held out her little apron, begging Saint Nick to let fall a pretty gift, and then she polished her little shoes and filled them with oats for Saint Nick's white horse and set them in the fireplace. While we were thus engaged, we heard the blowing of a horn. Hark! said Elsie. There are the mummers. She ran to the window, and we followed, wondering and a little frightened. But we only saw in the moonlight six human figures dressed grotesquely, who Elsie told us went from house to house on Christmas Eve, and wherever admitted, giving a rude kind of dramatic performance. Elsie's father invited them in and gave the best that his hospitable board afforded, as was the custom of the times. Were the oats all gone from Gretchen's shoes? 
interrupted Roland, whose mind had been dwelling more upon this part of the story than upon the mummers. Yes, when the Christmas bells rang out their silvery chimes on Christmas morning, we jumped up and ran downstairs to find the little shoes filled with toys and sweetmeats, and our stockings were so full as to have lost the shape of stockings. After breakfast, we were invited into a room wreathed in evergreen, smelling sweet and fresh and wholesome, where a beautiful Christmas tree met our astonished eyes. It had all been arranged so quietly that we knew nothing of it. After breakfast, the good mistress of the house sent out generous rations of beef and bread to the poor, and asked each of us to share our gifts with less favoured children. That we too might know the blessedness of giving as well as receiving. I wonder if you know, my dears, that our Christmas tree originated in Germany and our Christmas stocking in Belgium, while the Merry Christmas and Happy New Year is the old English greeting shouted from window to street and street to window. It is a beautiful custom wherever originated. Of laying down old animosities with the old year and beginning the new year with good will to all men, and when the bells ring out the old year and ring in the new, grandmother hopes her children will correct their little faults and ask the good Father to help you to overcome them before they become so strong that they will overcome you. And now. As you have had a merry, merry Christmas, may you have a happy New Year. Recording by Ruth Golding. Reginald's Christmas Revel, by Saki. They say, said Reginald, that there's nothing sadder than victory except defeat. If you've ever stayed with dull people during what is alleged to be the festive season, you can probably revise that saying. I shall never forget putting in a Christmas at the Babwolds. Mrs. Babwold is some relation of my father's, a sort of to be left till called for cousin, and that was considered sufficient reason for my having to accept her invitation at about the sixth time of asking. Though why the sins of the father should be visited by the children, you won't find any notepaper in that drawer. That's where I keep old menus and first night programs. Mrs. Babwold wears a rather solemn personality and has never been known to smile, even when saying disagreeable things to her friends or making out the stores list. She takes her pleasures sadly. A state elephant at Durbar gives one a very similar impression. Her husband gardens in all weathers. When a man goes out in the pouring rain to brush caterpillars off rose trees, I generally imagine his life indoors leaves something to be desired. Anyway, it must be very unsettling for the caterpillars. Of course, there were some other people there. There was a major somebody who had shot things in Lapland or somewhere of that sort. I forget what they were, but it wasn't for want of reminding. We had them cold with every meal almost, and he was continually giving us details of what they measured from tip to tip, as though he thought we were going to make them warm underthings for the winter. I used to listen to him with a rapt attention that I thought rather suited me, 
and then one day I quite modestly gave the dimensions of an old copy I had shot in the Lincolnshire Fens. The Major turned a beautiful Tyrian scarlet. I remember thinking at the time that I should like my bathroom hung in that colour, and I think that at that moment he almost found it in his heart to dislike me. Mrs. Babwold put on a first aid to the injured expression, and asked him why he didn't publish a book of his sporting reminiscences. It would be so interesting. She didn't remember till afterwards that he had given her two fat volumes on the subject, with his portrait and autograph as a frontispiece, and an appendix on the habits of the arctic muscle. It was in the evening that we cast aside the cares and distractions of the day, and really lived— Cards were thought to be too frivolous and empty a way of passing the time, so most of them played what they called a book game. You went out into the hall to get an inspiration, I suppose. Then you came in again with a muffler tied round your neck and looked silly, and the others were supposed to guess that you were wee MacGregor. I held out against the inanity as long as I decently could. But at last, in a lapse of good nature— I consented to masquerade as a book, only I warned them that it would take some time to carry out. They waited for the best part of forty minutes, while I went and played wine-glass skittles with the page-boy in the pantry. You play it with a champagne cork, you know, and the one who knocks down the most glasses without breaking them wins. I won with four unbroken out of seven. I think William suffered from over-anxiousness. They were rather mad in the drawing-room at my not having come back, and they weren't a bit pacified when I told them afterwards that I was at the end of the passage. I never did like Kipling, was Mrs. Babwold's comment when the situation dawned upon her. I couldn't see anything clever in Earthworms Out of Tuscany, or is that by Darwin? Of course these games are very educational, but personally I prefer bridge. On Christmas evening we were supposed to be specially festive in the old English fashion. The hall was horribly draughty, but it seemed to be the proper place to revel in, and it was decorated with Japanese fans and Chinese lanterns, which gave it a very old English effect. A young lady with a confidential voice favoured us with a long recitation about a little girl who died, or did something equally hackneyed, and then— the Major gave us a graphic account of a struggle he had with a wounded bear. I privately wished that the bears would win sometimes on these occasions. At least they wouldn't go vaporing about it afterwards. Before we had time to recover our spirits, we were indulged with some thought-reading by a young man whom one knew instinctively had a good mother and an indifferent tailor, the sort of young man who talks unflaggingly through the thickest soup and smooths his hair dubiously as though he thought it might hit back. The thought-reading was rather a success. He announced that the hostess was thinking about poetry, and she admitted that her mind was dwelling on one of Austin's odes, which was near enough. I fancy she had been really wondering whether a scrag-end of mutton and some cold plum-pudding would do for the kitchen dinner next day. As a crowning dissipation, they all sat down to play progressive Halma, with milk chocolate for prizes. I've been carefully brought up, and I don't like to play games of skill for milk chocolate, so I invented a headache and retired from the scene. I had been preceded a few minutes earlier by Miss Langshan Smith, a rather formidable lady, 
who always got up at some uncomfortable hour in the morning, and gave you the impression that she had been in communication with most of the European governments before breakfast. There was a paper pinned on her door with a signed request that she might be called particularly early on the morrow. Such an opportunity does not come twice in a lifetime. I covered up everything except the signature with another notice, to the effect that before these words should meet the eye, she would have ended a misspent life, was sorry for the trouble she was giving, and would like a military funeral. A few minutes later, I violently exploded an air-filled paper bag on the landing, and gave a stage moan that could have been heard in the cellars. Then I pursued my original intention and went to bed. The noise those people made in forcing open the good lady's door was positively indecorous. She resisted gallantly, but I believe they searched her for bullets for about a quarter of an hour, as if she had been an historic battlefield. I hate traveling on Boxing Day, but one must occasionally do things that one dislikes. End of Reginald's Christmas Revel by Saki Recording by Bob Gonzalez Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love and wonders of His love and wonders, wonders of His love.